verses 1 through 13. If then there is any encouragement in Christ, any consolation from love, any sharing in the Spirit, any compassion and sympathy, make my joy complete. Be of the same mind, having the same love, being in full accord and of one mind. Do nothing from selfish ambition or conceit, but in humility regard others as better than yourselves. Let each of you look not to your own interests, but to the interests of others. Let the same mind be in you that was in Christ Jesus, who though he was, he was in the form of God, did not regard equality with God as something to be exploited, but emptied himself, taking the form of a slave, being born in human likeness, and being found in human form, he humbled himself and became obedient to the point of death, even death on the cross. Therefore God also highly exalted him, and gave him the name that is above every name, so that, so that at the name of Jesus every knee should bend in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue should confess that Jesus Christ is Lord, to the glory of God the Father. Therefore, my beloved, just as you have always obeyed me, not only in my presence, but much more now in my absence, work out your own salvation with fear and trembling, for it is God who is at work in you, enabling you both to will and to work for his good Our Gospel reading. Our Gospel reading this morning comes from the Gospel of Matthew, chapter 21, verses 23 through 32. And when he entered the temple, the chief priests and the elders of the people came up to him as he was teaching and said, By what authority are you doing these things, and who gave you this authority? Jesus answered them, I also will ask you one question, and if you tell me the answer, then I will also tell you by what authority I do these things. The baptism of John, from where did it come? From heaven or from man? And they discussed it among themselves, saying, If we say from heaven, he will say to us, Why then did you not believe him? But if we say from man, we are afraid of the crowd, for they all hold that John is a prophet. So they answered Jesus, We do not know. And he said to them, Neither will I tell you by what authority I do these things. What do you think? A man had two sons, and he went to the first and said, Son, go and work in the vineyard today. And he answered, I will not. But afterward, he changed his mind and went. And he went to the other son and said the same. And he answered, I go, sir, but did not go. Which of the two did the will of his father? They said, the first. Jesus said to them, Truly I say to you, the tax collectors and the prostitutes go into the kingdom of God before you. For John came to you in the way of righteousness, and you did not believe him. 
But the tax collectors and the prostitutes believed him. And even when you saw it, you did not afterward change your minds and believe him. This is the word of God for the people of God. May the words of my mouth and the meditations of each of our hearts be pleasing and acceptable to you, O God, our rock and our redeemer. Picture this. We gather here on Sunday morning to worship, just as we do every Sunday morning. We sit here decently and in order, in the same seats we sit in every week, because we are Presbyterian, after all. And quietly we bow our heads in solemn prayer. Suddenly some wild man bursts in through the doors and begins throwing hymnals and tearing bulletins apart yelling, this is not what it's about. The world is not paying attention to you because you are not paying attention to me. Perhaps he begins to throw paint on the walls, screaming that we are more than just a beautiful building. You haven't listened to anything I've been saying to you lately. Would we recognize him as Jesus if that is how he spoke to us today? Would we be willing to stop and listen to what he had to say? Or would we write him off as a nutty, rabble-rousing heretic who should be shuttled off for the law to deal with? This is just exactly what had happened in the temple at Jerusalem immediately before the passage that I just read. Jesus had burst into the temple, tearing the place up, because it had become a place of tradition and penny-pinching and nostalgia with very little of God's work actually happening. He literally started flipping over tables and tossing them around. And it was, as you can imagine, not received well by the people in the temple. The Pharisees are upset here because Jesus just came through like a whirlwind, turning over tables and changing up the status quo. Can you blame them? They were being faithful to the traditions of their faith that had been passed down to them by their fathers and their fathers' fathers and their fathers' fathers' fathers. They were keeping the temple running just as it had been for centuries. What was good enough for their fathers should be good enough for anyone in their day. If someone who was not from their tradition wanted to join, they would just have to accept that their way had been fine for a very long time, and they could just adjust to fit it. I have to admit that this is one of those times in which I really sympathize with the Pharisees. Those poor guys get a bad rap, but when you think about it, they weren't necessarily evil. They were just set in their ways. I can't blame them for wanting to preserve the holiness and the familiarity of their traditions. I grew up Presbyterian. I was born six weeks before my dad graduated from Presbyterian Seminary, which is why I have a Scottish family name like Clark and a Greek first name like Carissa. My family name Clark literally means clergy. That's how long my family have been Scottish Presbyterians. I think there was a rebellious Quaker once upon a time in our family tree, and my sister's a Lutheran now, but for the most part, we're just about the most Presbyterian family a family could ever be. I even married the son of a Presbyterian organist. And as a result, 
I can be a bit of a Presbyterian Pharisee. Paul, who was the Pharisee Saul before being transformed on the road to Damascus by Jesus, called himself the most Jewish of the Jews. And I can understand in a way where he's coming from because sometimes I feel like maybe I'm the most Presbyterian of the Presbyterians. I like a nice heavy hymnal in my hands when I'm singing. I like to sit in the back of the church. It's an occupational hazard that I don't get to sit in the back of the church every Sunday. I like the flow of a good reformed liturgy which must include confession because, brothers and sisters, we are depraved, after all. And there are few things that settle my soul more than the sound of bagpipes in a sanctuary. So I'm pretty sure if Jesus came in here today, tearing up our lovely Presbyterian sanctuary and telling us that we needed to repent and listen up, I'd be a bit taken aback, too. Like the Pharisees, I would be asking him exactly who it was that told him it was okay to waltz in here and act like that. But friends, where Jesus comes from, it doesn't matter if you're born into the most Presbyterian of Presbyterian families or into the most Jewish of Jewish families. It doesn't matter to him if you've been running in the right circles or going to the right church. It matters to him that we are faithful to our calling to follow him, even when it sounds nuts. And the Pharisees, who had professed their allegiance to God for their entire lives, did not, in spite of, or perhaps because of, their diligent adherence to their traditional law and custom, they did not live out that allegiance they proclaimed. Their legalism and their rigidity prevented them from actually doing God's will in and for the world around them. In most of Jesus' parables, it's easy to identify our good Christian selves as the heroes. But we learn more from these rich and complicated stories when we learn to see ourselves as the bad guys, too. It's nice to think that we are the son who is slightly rebellious, coming late to the game, who actually does the work. But it's more challenging, and in turn more convicting and more powerful, to see where we are the son who pledges to do his father's work and then fails to actually do it. Jesus doesn't tell parables as some sort of pop quizzes or tests of our religious knowledge. He doesn't tell them so that we can feel good about ourselves and pat ourselves on the back for all the ways that we got it right. Jesus tells parables to challenge us and to help us to see the world in a different light. He tells them to help us see ourselves in a different light. The easiest reading or interpretation of a parable is rarely the most important one. It is a common lament in the American church that people don't seem to care about church anymore. There are more people at sporting events or at brunch or mowing their lawns this morning than there are at church. The church has lost its authority. It has lost its cultural capital. And perhaps the church has lost its authority because those of us in church on Sunday, like the Pharisees, would often rather keep the status quo than shake things up like Jesus did.
We can get so wrapped up in trying to get back to the good old days that we miss God working in the here and now. It's easier to sit here and pledge allegiance to God with our words and keep on doing what we've always done without doing the hard work of justice and compassion for those in the margins of society, the tax collectors and prostitutes of our time. Real, honest-to-goodness, effective evangelism is hard work. So we say, sure, God, we'll spread the gospel for you. And then we never speak a peep of it outside of our sanctuary doors. There are other organizations out there doing evangelism. There are other organizations out there working with those people. Even if they don't claim to be Christian with their words, we're happy to let them work in the vineyard. Brothers and sisters, God's work will be done whether we are on board with it or not. There are plenty of sons out there who say no, who say no to God, don't pledge their time and their energy to God, but who are still doing God's work anyway. It doesn't have to have the label Christian on it to be God's work. An organization doesn't have to have a scripturally based mission statement to be in line with God's work in the world. Likewise, just because it has the label church or Christian on it, or a scripture quote in the mission statement, doesn't mean it's actually doing anything for God's kingdom. Where compassion is found, where unwanted people are cared for, where justice is sought, that is where God's work is being done. And where those things are neglected, the vineyard is left untended. There is no amount of confessing or corporate prayer or quoting the Bible that can possibly make a person or a group of persons righteous. You can say, I commit my life to God every day, but if it is just words, it means nothing. Even the lowest of the low, the tax collectors and the prostitutes, are given a place in the kingdom for their faithful devotion to Jesus. Even those who never quite fully grasp academically what it is that Jesus is getting at or is there for, even those please God by their faithful following. But woe to those who say they are devoted to God and refuse to participate in his work in the world. That kind of work is not for me. Is not a good excuse if you are a Christian because compassion and justice are what God has been calling us to since the very beginning of time. I'm not called to that sort of service doesn't fly if you are a Christian because God asks us all to go work in the vineyard. When it comes down to it, I still love the little Presbyterian church that I grew up in. A church which is pretty synonymous with every little Presbyterian church from that time. I miss those days, and I'm sure this church looked an awful lot like Forest Park Presbyterian Church in the 70s and 80s. I love the memories of corny skits at Vacation Bible School, youth group bowling nights. I love the memories of my fifth grade Sunday school teacher who taught me to love things like World Communion Sunday and missions. I was sad when I heard that that church had merged with another one in town, a sign that both had dwindled since their heydays. My kids are growing up with very different memories of church. 
And while I may be the most Presbyterian of Presbyterians, I think that's okay. Because the gospel is more important than the status quo. God's work is way cooler than any work we could do on our own. Church will never again look like it did when I was a kid. And that's because God is always moving, always changing, always challenging us to move and grow and change. And unless we are willing to grow and change and move and do new things in new ways with God, we lose our authority. Nobody asks the ones maintaining the same old, same old who has given them the authority to do so because it doesn't matter. When I was a kid, Vacation Bible School and corny youth group outings did spread the gospel. I really believed that they were a faithful response of my church community to the work that God was doing in the lives of our town. I'm sure that they were here, too. But just because that is how God was moving 30 or 40 years ago does not mean it's how God moves now. God is, after all, God. The church today is faced with an important decision. Are we going to actually do the work that God sets before us, regardless of what it looks like? Because it matters what we do, not what we say. We can pray the Lord's Prayer and recite the creeds and read the prayers of confession until we're blue in the face, but if we don't head out those doors and walk the walk, we're the son who says yes and then goes about doing what he's going to do anyway, leaving the vineyard empty. And Jesus does not mean nitpicky rule following when he says we need to do what the Father says. The Pharisees were masters of following the rules. What they weren't was compassionate. What they were missing was imagination and openness to God doing new things in the world. If the son, who rudely says, nope, to his father's request for help, still manages to help the father by doing the work, how much more honor does it bring to God when we say yes and then go out and do it? How much more honor does it bring God when we go out emulating Christ, not by persnickety bookkeeping of rights and wrongs, but by being of the same mind, having the same love, being in full accord and of one mind by doing nothing from selfish ambition or conceit but in humility counting others more significant than ourselves each of us looking not only to his own interests but also to the interests of others in today's divided culture that's weird counting others more significant than ourselves looking to the interests of all people I dare you to walk into the middle of a heated political debate and say, well, Philippians 2, 3, and 4 says we should count other people more important than ourselves and that we should care about other people's well-being at least as much as our own. You will be about as well received as Jesus walking into the temple and flipping over tables. You may even be asked, who gives that Bible of yours the authority to say silly things like that? Or what good is that old book of yours anyway? In fact, I hope you are asked that very question in that sort of situation because that 
Brothers and sisters is how we know we're on the right track. If someone has to ask what business we have saying something so ridiculous and so countercultural, it means that what we just said has weight. It has authority. It has power. It means you've just helped Jesus flip a few tables over. What the world needs today is radical transformation. What the world needs today is the message of God's love and grace. What the world needs is for the church to once again speak with the authority of our rabble-rousing Messiah. Amen.